Thank you, Adam, and praise team, musicians. If you would turn your Bible, you'll hear this a lot over the next months, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin a study in the book of Genesis. We're going to go from chapter 1 to chapter 50, because I believe that this is the foundational book of the Bible. I believe that all the ills in our culture are the direct fruit of either ignorance of Genesis or just unbelief in what the book of Genesis says. And so it's so vital and important that we, we know, as the people of God, what the book of Genesis has to say to us. The inerrant, infallible book of, of Genesis. So if you would look with me in verse 1, we're going to look at just two verses tonight. We're not going to keep that pace. It, we'd be in here forever. But this is so foundational, these first two verses, the introduction of Genesis. So we'll just look at these two verses this evening, and then we'll pick up the pace in subsequent Sundays. In chapter 1, verse 1, first book of our canon, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this study in Genesis, we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to grant us illumination. And I pray that you would grant me secret counsel. We are living in some terrible times, difficult times as Paul describes them. And we believe that Genesis is so foundational to addressing those issues in our society, in our culture, in our homes, in our own hearts. And we pray that you give us ears to hear. We pray you would Incline our hearts toward your word tonight. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we might behold the wondrous things found in your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name tonight as we consider this word. And as we sang this morning, satisfy us this evening with your loving kindness that we know supremely in the one in whom Genesis points, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. At the centennial celebration of the publication of On the Origin of Species, which you know was written by Charles Darwin, Julian Huxley, who, who was the grandson of Thomas Huxley, who was Darwin's, one of Darwin's best friends, if not best friend, and his bulldog, if you will, uh, Julian Huxley made the religious implications of the Darwinian worldview very clear. And here's what he said. All aspects of reality are subject to evolution. From atoms and stars to fish and flowers. From fish and flowers to human societies and values. Indeed, that all reality is a single process of evolution. In the evolutionary pattern of thought... There is no longer any, either need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created. 
it evolved. So did all the animals and plants that inhabit it, including our human selves, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. So did religion. Finally, the evolutionary vision is enabling us to discern, however incompletely, the lineaments of the new religion that we can be sure will arise to serve the needs of the coming era. Now that is a prophetic, if not tragic, statement. And there's so much here to, to unpack. Uh, note he says, all aspects of reality are subject to evolution. I mean, do you get that? Nothing's stable. Uh, nothing has inherent meaning and worth. Everything is evolving, including, he says, values. Values evolve. It only stands to reason because there is no external reality by which our value claims must correspond, right? What are values? Uh, basic fundamental beliefs that guide us, motivate us, our attitudes, our actions. And as a result of that, because there's no inherent uh, value that corresponds to a mastermind that created things, we get to create our own values. You see how prophetic he was. Then he says, there's no longer either need or room for the supernatural. So that would include... As he says, creation, it would also include revel revelation. Think about this. The reason we, we believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible is because, first of all, the Bible says it is. It doesn't use the word inerrant, but it does use the word perfect. Um, the Bible claims its own perfections. And, and, and the reason the Bible is per per perfect and can be perfect is because... There is a supernatural operation of the Spirit who ensures the perfection of the Word written by the prophets and the apostles. But you take away the supernatural, all this is, is religious beliefs in various ages that contradict themselves. So many implications in this worldview. And he says... The supernatural, there's no room for it. In other words, there's no room for redemption either. Because we know that redemption, salvation, is grounded by the most remarkable supernatural act in the uh, history of the world. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says everything's evolved, uh, including human selves, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. Well, if we're just uh, random um, products of evolutionary movement, uh, we, we get to determine our own reality. We get to determine our own truths and our own um, genders, uh, to use a contemporary debate. And then he says religion itself is evolving. And so this worldview has dominated the sciences for the last hundred years. It's the worldview of Darwinian evolution. Now, granted, there's, you have these intramural debates even within that group. They don't agree with each other because all of them are dealing with a falsehood. 
So it stands to reason they don't agree with each other. Uh, they cannot come to terms with how life comes from non-life and, and how something comes from nothing. There's, there's no foundation to their, their view. Uh, but this worldview declares that behind the universe, there's no plan, there's no purpose, there's no goals, there's no direction, there's no inherent worth, because there's no mastermind which means we get to determine it ourselves. And that's where we are in our culture. So how do we, and we'll, we'll be speaking about that in subsequent weeks, more about that, but how do we confront this religion? And it is a religion. It's a worldview and it's also a religion that has produced untold chaos in our culture, like the redefinition of marriage like abortion rights, gender confusion, and an anti-authority impulse in all segments of our society. Well, the Word of God, and perhaps most strategically, the opening word in the Word of God, Genesis, helps us confront that. Now, now Genesis, this is interesting, spans more time than any other Bible book. In fact, it covers more time than all the other 65 books of the Bible together. In fact, and, and, I, and I am a strong young earther, but even with a young earth um, perspective on Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis likely spans more time than all the other books together. It's a very interesting section of Scripture. And so just to break this down, Genesis 1 to 11 speaks to primeval history. The early history from the creation of the world to the creation of Adam on the sixth day all the way to Abraham. We first read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, the second section of Genesis is patriarchal history. That's Genesis 12 all the way to the end, Genesis 50. And so this focuses on four patriarchs. You know who those patriarchs are. Abraham, uh, and, and we read about Abraham primarily in chapters 12 to 20. And then his son, Isaac. We read about Isaac from chapters 21 to 26. Then Jacob, uh, chapters 27 to 36. And then the last section of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50, is centered on Jacob's son, Joseph. Genesis is about grace. You could say that the summary verse in the New Testament to describe Genesis is Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So who wrote Genesis? Well, if the Bible is your authority, there is no debate on that. And the Old Testament itself affirms Mosaic authorship. And apart from the Old Testament, the New Testament affirms Mosaic authorship. So anyone else making another claim is wrong. The Bible is our authority. If we can't trust the Bible, what it says about itself, we can't trust, about, trust it on any other doctrine. And Jesus himself believed that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. 
and the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. In fact, we sang a song this morning, Psalm 90, that was written by Moses. But here's what Jesus says about Moses. He says, do not think I will accuse you to the Father. John chapter 5. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you have believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So that's interesting in a couple of ways. Uh, Jesus is referring to the fact that there was a man named Moses, and he wrote in what we know as the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And, and Jesus gives us the hermeneutical scheme for that Torah. In other words, the interpreted, the way to interpret Genesis through Deuteronomy. He says, Moses wrote of me. So when we interpret Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we interpret it through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, when was it written? It was likely written in the 15th century B.C. at the time or right after the Exodus. Uh, Israel had just escaped the polytheism of Egypt. And we saw when we, we looked at the plagues that fell on, on Egypt that Egypt worshipped some 80 to 120 gods. We know them as false gods. And so Moses is writing this book to these people who are making their way into the wilderness and who will inherit the land as promised by the Lord. And he is taking on the worldview of the Egyptians that they had just been delivered from. <clears throat> and so his approach is interesting. Moses does not condescend to mention any of the Egyptians' false gods. But what he does is he answers them through a thoroughgoing, God-centered account of first things. That's how he does it. I'll tell you what else is interesting about Genesis. There is no uh, place in the book of Genesis where Moses seeks to prove the existence of God. God is. He, he presupposes the very being of God. Scripture stands on that very truth. God is. And he knows we've been, as I use this language often, hardwired for God. And so when Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, in the beginning, God, he's assuming that the one who's been made for God will hear that and recognize that as, as truth. Well, that brings us to uh, the first verse. We've got two points this morning or this evening, um, God in the cosmos and God in the earth. And that's the introduction of Genesis. Verse 1 focuses on the cosmos, and verse 2 focuses on the earth. So the first point we see is God and the cosmos. Look with me in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. And so the name of this first book of the Bible derives from the opening word of the Hebrew text, which is one word in Hebrew, in the beginning. 
Uh, and it's an appropriate title because this book is about beginnings. It's about a genesis. It's about origins, the beginning of, of the universe, the, the beginning of time, the beginning of matter and space and humanity, where sin comes from, uh, the beginning of the promise of the gospel, redemption, etc. It's the beginning. Now, if you were to ask believers, what are the four most important words in the Bible? You'd get a variety of answers, and it'd be hard to disagree with a lot of those answers. Maybe some would say the four most important words in the Bible are from the mouth of Jesus. I am the way. It's hard to disagree with that. I am the way, or I am the truth. I am the life. It's hard to disagree with that. Or maybe you would say the most four important words of the Bible are Christ died for sinners. Hard to disagree with that. You're dealing with ultimate things there. That is a true truth. But it just might be that the four most important words in the Bible are right here in the first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Now, why would I say that? Because that line lays the foundation for every thing else. In other words, God is the foundation. He is the author. He's the source. He's the cause. He is the purpose of creation. Notice the glory of that phrase, in the beginning God. In fact, God's name dominates Genesis 1. It absolutely dominates it. His name is used 32 times in 31 verses. This name is Elohim. We'll talk more about that name in just a second. And if you add the personal pronouns for God from Genesis 1, he's mentioned 43 times in the first 31 verses. And so that gives us the, the, the account of the cosmos. And now <clears throat> Moses is going to direct our attention, and for the rest of the Bible we're going to see this, on things of the earth, God and the earth. That brings us to verse 2. God and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So he's already created, it appears in verse 1. And now the earth he created in some mysterious fashion. It's hard to understand, we weren't there. But the earth was without form and it was void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. One thing we do know is matter is not eternal. Because verse 1 tells us that God created everything. And yet at this point, it appears that what he has created is without form and void. And darkness is over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we'll get into verse 3 next week, but God speaks a word, let there be light, and there was light. And so you see a, a Trinitarian, I think, um, implicit Trinitarian impulse, even in Moses, because he's speaking about Elohim, who by the Spirit speaks the word. And we, of course, we know, we're going to start John after Thanksgiving, uh, that the word was and is God, the second person of the Godhead. 
But notice here, um, these two nouns indicate the condition of the earth without form and void. Now, in the Hebrew, he uses a rhyme. It's poetic imagery, probably for a, uh, just a mimetic device to help us remember. Tohu wabohu. That is the two nouns without form and, and void. And if you were spelling this in English, tohu, T-O-H-U. Uh, wabohu, W-A-B-O-U-H-U. Now, importantly, uh, formless and void gives us a key to the six days of creation. Now, you see poetry uh, in the rest of chapter 1, but that doesn't mean we don't take it straightforwardly. There is nothing in Genesis 1 that would indicate that we're not to take this straightforward. It's just that our God invented poetry. He's, just, he's beautiful. He's a, he's a poet. He, he's a ma- he, he, he creates masterpieces. And so there is symmetry in Genesis 1, but that's not to say we shouldn't take it in a straightforward way. And, and so those first two nouns give us an idea of what he's going to do in days 1 to 6 as he creates all things. Uh, notice again, formless and void. And so the first three days of creation... God forms out of formless matter that he's created. And then the second three days of creation, he feels. He feels what he has formed. We'll see that next week. And so we see this God is creating a masterpiece here. Uh, The famed Genesis commentator, Umberto Casuto, gives us this picture that I think is very helpful. Just as the potter, when he, fishes, he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish. So the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to giving it afterwards order and life. It is this terrestrial state that is called tohu and bohu. The second clause speaks of, notice, darkness was over the face of the deep. Um, So this describes, I think, two things. First of all, there was no light on the earth at this point. That's going to come uh, in verse 3. But it also tells us at this point the earth was not a firm body. This is confirmed by the statement, and uh, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the midst of this empty, formless, and dark place, the Spirit is already at work. Again, I think that Genesis is preparing us uh, for something even greater than creation. And that is new creation. I believe that's what he's doing here. It's a picture of how God works in our hearts. It's not a mistake to say that the work of the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit is called regeneration. All right? What is generation? It's creation. And so the work of Christ by the Spirit in our hearts is, is, is called regeneration in 
Titus chapter 3. And how about this? Recreation. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Uh, Now, this passage tells us a lot about God and a lot about us. And I want to close tonight with just a few thoughts from just Genesis 1 and 2, but subsequent texts that we'll be considering as well. First of all, and we're going to learn this from Genesis chapter 1, God's ways are perfect. All that God creates is good. In fact, six times it says, and it was good. And the seventh time it says, and it was very good. And so, uh, the expulsion from the garden, there was a literal Adam. There was a literal Eve that was expelled from the garden. The flood, the judgment on Babel remind us that God doesn't trifle with sin. All that God created was good. And when we seek to use uh, his creation in a cavalier, maverick way, he does not play games with that. He can't stand in the presence of sin. He'll bring judgment. But secondly, even alongside of God's justice and his judgment is his grace. We're going to see his grace as early as chapter 3. Uh, we'll see animal skins that Adam and Eve are covered in, um, which, which indicates that uh, they learned from God that if you're going to come into the presence of God as a sinner, you have to come through a sacrificial substitute. We're going to see that promise, Genesis 3.15. It becomes the mother promise of the Bible, uh, that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Uh, We're going to see Genesis 15, when God makes covenant with Abraham, and and you have these animals that are are cut up and and, and placed in a row. And in in those days, a covenant would be made, and, and, and you would have both parties passing through those parts, that if either party breaks covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to that one who breaks covenant. But instead of having Abraham pass through those animal parts, God himself passes through it, communicating that, If you break covenant, Abraham, or if your seed breaks covenant, the curse that belongs to you will fall on me. We're going to see grace throughout the book of Genesis. Third, we learn about this God that he is self-revealed. He is a revealing God. Uh, He reveals himself to man. Uh, He never proves himself in this book. He never seeks to do an apologetic study of his existence. Um, He has written himself in our hearts and in creation. And he reveals himself in his his names, his images. We're going to learn that he is a shield. We're going to learn that he is El Shaddai. Uh, We're going to learn that he is the God who sees. Uh, There are glorious names that are revealed in the book of Genesis. Fourth, we're going to learn, and we learned here, In verse 1, that God is a unity. He is one. He is the one God. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And that will become the confession of Israel. Um, Hero Israel, uh, that verb means Shema. The Lord our God is one. But even here, in the first two verses, we are learning that there is plurality in the Godhead. 
you couldn't lay out a full-blown Nicene-Constantinople confession of the Trinity here, but we see it in the first two verses. Here's, Here's my argument. The name Elohim, in the beginning God, is remarkably a plural name. There's one God, but this one God has a plural name. But then the verb created is singular. In the beginning, God created. So the name Elohim is plural, and the the verb um, to create, Barak, is singular. What that tells me is either Moses is bad at grammar, and he's not, or there, he is writing greater than he knows. Because that's the great confession of Israel. God is one. And then we've already seen the fact that the Spirit of God is at work and the Word of God is at work in the creation. And then we'll see later in chapter 1 where God in divine deliberation will say, let us make man in our image. That can't be the angels. Because angels aren't, aren't first of all, the image of God. And second, angels don't create. And so even in the creation of man, we see there is a plurality in the Godhead. He is one, uh, but he is plural. Sixth, God has no rivals. The very first two verses drive that home. Listen to Paul House, Old Testament scholar. God has jurisdiction over all created persons and things. The fact that he created every human being means he has jurisdiction over them. And when we approach people in evangelism, we assume that. Jeremiah 10, verse 11, Jeremiah says, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth they shall perish. And all of us worship something. Seventh, this God is powerful. And a fancy term that we use in theology, God is omnipotent, omnipotent. Jeremiah 32, I love this, 17. Ah, Lord God, who created the heavens and the earth with his power, And his outstretched arm. Your God is all powerful. And he is good. All that he created was good. Now that's a pretty good combination. Your God is not only all powerful. He is good. Now you can envision having a good being. Who who can't do anything. Or you can have this dictator being who is all-powerful, but, but, but he's not good. But when you, when you combine those two realities, the all-powerful uh, attribute of God and the goodness of God, what a glorious combination for those who have ears to hear. Now, when it says he created, it means that he didn't have some kind of pre-existing planet-sized pieces of Play-Doh to work with. The term I want to introduce to you, and many of you know this term, because I know Brother Al has often used this term, but God created ex nihilo, Latin, 
for out of nothing. God created ex nihilo. Now, it's true that that specific expression is not explicitly laid out in the Bible. Ex nihilo. But neither is the word providence. Neither is the, the term trinity. That doesn't mean these aren't biblical concepts. Uh, uh, neither is the term inerrancy. That doesn't mean it's not a, a biblical concept. But God created out of nothing. The first time that phrase ex nihilo was used is actually found in a book of the Apocrypha called 2 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 28, which we do not recognize as having authority or being canonical. Um, but that's not to say what 2 Maccabees says there is not true. In fact, the New Testament validates that. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God and that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or Romans 4, verse 17, listen to this. God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Isn't that hopeful? He calls into existence the things that do not exist. The reason I find that hopeful, among other things, is because Scripture constantly compares God's work of new creation to God's work of creation. And all of us, or most of us, I would say, have lost family members. And it just seems absolutely impossible that you could ever envision this person being saved. You have prayed for this person for many years. In Romans 4.17, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so we have a lot of hope in that. And so Genesis 1, 1 and 2, uh, and subsequent texts, teach us about God. But I'm going to close here with a couple of thoughts about what it teaches about us. In particular, three deceptive lies that we all struggle with. We didn't struggle with it before Genesis 3. But we struggle with it after Genesis 3. The first deceptive lie that we struggle with is the lie of personal autonomy. The, the lie of personal autonomy. So our flesh seduces us into thinking that we are independent creatures. We can live our lives our way. It's my life. It's my body. You ever heard that? Just listen to some of the most popular songs in recent decades. Bon Jovi, It's My Life. Or how about the most popular song at funerals? Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way. But I want you to hear the song of Moses. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If God is first, no one life really belongs to them. All right? We do not have the right to think and act and speak as if our lives do belong to us. The second lie is the lie of relativity. In other words, the lie that everything is relative. Uh, morals are relative. Truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. And so relatively, uh, relativity declares that one idea is just as valid as another idea. Your view of marriage is not my view of marriage. 
What makes your view of marriage any more true than my view of marriage? That mentality essentially is saying there's no mastermind that created marriage. But Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 take on that lie and expose it for what it is. And then finally, the lie of self-sufficiency. This, this lie deludes us into thinking that we have everything within ourselves to pursue whatever it is that autonomy has granted us license to pursue and be whoever relativity, relativity as we can be. It's the lie of self-sufficiency. And Genesis 1, 1 and 2 give us a different picture. If God is the source of life, and he is, there's really only two choices. Something doesn't come out of nothing unless there's a divine being, which means either matter is eternal or there is a God behind the matter. And if God is the source of life, then we are completely dependent on him for life, for identity, for meaning, and purpose. We are completely dependent on him. And, and, and the moment we rebel from that notion, we may think we have freedom. But as I tell a lot of these students on Thursday nights, that freedom is akin to a fish that flops out of the water thinking it has freedom. And actually it's enslaved to death. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist for God. Even the most ardent Atheist exist for God. But herein lies the problem. Personal autonomy, relativism, and self-sufficiency, they separate us from the God for whom we exist. And that's bad news. It's bad news for every single human since Genesis chapter 3. But God doesn't leave us in the, the bad news. And I want to close here, and, and I want to direct this word specifically to any tonight who perhaps have never trusted in this God. In Hebrews 2, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews, and we'll find out who wrote it one day when we get to heaven. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you see the point there? We were created for God. We went rogue. We'll learn that in Genesis 3. And yet, this God devised a plan to save the maverick by sending his son, the one that we were created to worship. So as our musicians come forward, I want to encourage you if you've never trusted in Jesus, the one you were created for, don't waste this evening. Don't waste this message. Every time you hear the word of God, it's an invitation from God 
It is a call from God to repent and believe. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the rest of Genesis 1 for that matter, tell us you were created for him. But you're separated from him because of your sin. And he's built a bridge. He has come to reconcile us to him through the Son of God who, who took the, the cross, who took the judgment that we deserve for our autonomy, our self-sufficiency, our relativity. And if you repent of your sin and trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled to this God who created you. So let's stand and sing, and won't you come? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.